Hi, I'm Priyanka. And I'm Lexis. This is Incubation Time. So, hey, Lexis. Hi. Happy post-break. Yes, happy uh, January 18th. Yes. <laughs> it's way too late to say New Year. No, no. No, um, I think you. it's almost like wearing white pants after Labor Day. Like, you have six months that you can say Happy New Year, and then you're probably, like, shouldn't say Happy New Year anymore. I, I, I dare you to say Happy New Year to someone in June. <laughs> I will. I will. Well, that's at the six-month mark. I'll say it in, like, mid-May. <laughs> Just Happy New Year. How you doing? Well, hi. It's been a good break for us. Um, yeah, it's been a while. Definitely. What'd you do over break? I was in town mostly, but there was just a lot of friend reunions mm-hmm. happened over break, weddings, my Christmas with my family. We had a lot of guests staying with us. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really fun December. I, I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. You said you had a lot of people coming in and out of your guest bedroom. A lot. Mm-hmm. It was great. We really loved it. I know. We looked at our water bill for December, and I was like, what's going on here? And it's like, oh, we basically had roommates for like half the month. That's what's going on. <laughs> oh, gosh. You guys are too nice. I'm like very stingy about do I let someone stay in my guest room or not, <laughs> just because I don't want the annoyance of like having to cater to them. <laughs> Oh, we love having guests. That's the whole reason we got a two bedroom is because we wanted to make sure people could stay with us. True. If I ever need to stay, that's my place to go. Yes, 100%. Yeah. What about you? How was your winter? It was good. I um, drove home because flights were so expensive, and so that's a 14-hour drive back up there, and then stayed up home in Minnesota for a couple days and then drove back. I ended up going into work the week and the week between Christmas and New Year's, and mm-hmm. then took an actual vacation the week after New Year's. And um, me and my girlfriend went to Colorado and went snowboarding, mm-hmm. stayed in a tiny home, did all the things. It's fun, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Did you have to drive through the snow on your way to home or, or back? No. So going up there, I mean, even on Christmas, there was no snow in Minnesota, okay. which is odd but it's happened before like most of the time we'll get snow on thanksgiving but not on christmas but then like i left right the day that i left a snowstorm had hit that night and Mm. so my family was like you shouldn't drive home you should stay another 10 years with us and i was like (laughs) no i need to get out i need to go home so uh i waited till the plows and the i or the salt and everything had been on the roads and Mm -hmm. just left but i mean i know how to drive in the snow i did it for 22 years that's true it's it's pretty easy with a four-wheel drive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. So, yeah, we're back. We're ready to go. We're we're picking back up from our model organism series. Um, we're hoping to be a little bit more regular this semester. For sure. We don't have all of the stuff that has been piling up for the first two years of grad school. We actually have just, like, time. Yes, very true. We're not taking classes. We... Mm-hmm. Maybe just have to give a couple of presentations this semester, but yep. other than that, we're we're pretty good to go. My grandma the other day was like, so what's next in grad school? And I was like, well, I have whips April 11th. And she goes, you don't have anything till April 11th? And I was like, no, I don't have anything till April 11th. It's kind of a nice feeling. Yeah. And we both have never done whips before. So no. it's like we're this far in and haven't. It's pretty interesting. Um, okay, so... We're going to do our regular segments that we like to start the show with. Um, So, Alexis, why don't you get us started with your Women in Science? Yeah. So, for Women in Science, I'm introducing Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin. She's a British chemist. And so, she is pretty famous for identifying a lot of things that we just take take advantage of, basically. Um, But she was the first to really identify their crystal structures. And so Dorothy was born in 1910. Um, She actually has an interesting backstory. She was born in Cairo. Um, She's British, born in Cairo, um, then moved to Sudan Hmm. at a young age. I don't know exactly the age. And then ended up going to undergrad in summer or yeah undergrad at Somerville College in Oxford and then she did her PhD at Newnham College in Cambridge Mm -hmm. and so she got the Nobel Prize in 1964 in chemistry and she's actually one of the first few women to get the Nobel Prize in chemistry and so she did that for the discovery of um, a certain ring structure on B12 vitamin but that's not really all she's been able to contribute to science so she actually discovered the structure of penicillin along with other people and that was published um 
that was published in 49, but that wasn't exactly the reason why she got the Nobel Prize. The prize was for a B12. And so mm-hmm. she has a huge background in crystallography and identifying these um, just a bunch of different things that have been helpful for science. She also helped um, discover and confirm the structure of penicillin. Mm-hmm. And so she's a woman of crystallography, a woman of crystals, and uh, a lot of the work that she has done has helped in medicine and vitamins and everything that you could think of. And so that's Dorothy, but she's kind of a boss. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I love that story. Okay, so I'm going to do my little like science news of the day segment, and for what I've what I've picked today is a story of the very first pig to human organ transplants that occurred last year and early this year. So, organ transplants are really hard to come by. Yeah, for Um, sure. Hundreds of thousands of people are on the transplant list, Mm -hmm. but very few of them usually get organs. And it's reported that about 17 people die every day waiting for organs. Um, And a lot of those are kidneys, which, you know, you can donate while you're still alive. But a lot of those are ones you have to wait for someone to die who's an organ organ donor to Mm -hmm. get them. Hearts, livers, etc. So for a long time, scientists have been hoping that we can use animal organs to be able to supply some of that demand. Mm -hmm. But obviously... Rejection for animal organs is very, very high. Um, they've tried this in the past with primates, and what usually happens is that within minutes, the organ turns black mm-hmm. because the body rejects it. Yep. So, through a lot of research, we found out that the main um, protein on, say, a pig organ that our body is responding to is this particular sugar that we also respond to when people are allergic to meat. Mm-hmm. So... Scientists are using genetic engineering, CRISPR specifically, to be able to alter that protein in pigs and then grow up pigs that are genetically modified, hoping that that might allow the organ to be accepted by a human. Have they commented on what the effect it has on like the pig's lifespan by deleting that protein? They actually haven't, and I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like the pigs are okay. Mm-hmm. And so... Early, no, so around October last year, it was reported that NYU surgeons were able to attach a kidney to a woman who was already brain dead, so her family donated her body to Mm -hmm. science, and they attached a kidney to her um, on the outside of her body so that they could observe it for 52 hours, and the kidney was fine. So this genetically modified pig kidney was fine, and they said within minutes it started producing urine. Like, it started working right away. Now, obviously, the main issue with this is that the person they did the um, surgery on was on immunosuppressants. Mm -hmm. So they don't know how this kidney would have lived in that person's body when they were off immunosuppressants, but this is a really good start. I mean, this was a proof of concept that scientists have been working towards for a while. And then following that... um, Surgeons in Maryland, um, after that, were able to use the same kind of pigs, and they actually managed to transplant a heart into a living patient who was um, on the transplant list but wasn't able to receive anyone else's heart and wasn't able to get an artificial heart. So he donated his own body, and he received a pig heart, and he's doing fine so far. Amazing. It's absolutely crazy. And so... This is a huge step forward. Now, obviously, it's not FDA-approved yet. Mm -hmm. Neither one of these works have been peer-reviewed yet. They've just been reported. And they would need to do a lot more longitudinal studies to know if it's safe. Um, Plus, not to mention, it is very expensive right now because you have to genetically modify and grow these pigs uniquely. But it is a very cool proof of concept. Yeah. I mean, every new type of science starts off super expensive until it's getting mass produced and really utilized. And so, I mean, I can see in the next 20 years this becoming affordable for a lot of people if they need this type of transplant. Yeah, because especially with stuff like hearts and livers, I could see it being a big market Mm -hmm. Um, because you can't donate those. No. And the... And stay alive. (laughs) Yeah. And the category to even give a heart after you're dead is so narrow Mm -hmm. that, like, most people just don't qualify. Yeah. So... And a little bit of just talk about, you know, transplants in general... 
you know, in the U.S., you when you go and get your license and everything, you have to actively mark if you want to be a donor or anything. But in most right. countries, uh, I know this is specific. I think it's in the U.K. I was listening to this, but you actually are automatically a donor until you opt out. Yeah, when I've you're getting licensed, and so your rate of people that can donate post mortem is mm-hmm. like. 20 to 30 percent in the U.S. However, in the U.K. or places like this that it's an opt-out situation, it's like 75 percent. Right. And so you have such a huge number of people. Um, And this is not me like parading people to go become donors, (laughs) but I mean... Yeah, it's it's, a good thing to do. It's an easy thing to do. All right. So just kick off our yeast episode. Yeast. Um, I'll give you a quick background of what yeast we're talking about. We're not going to get into it too detailed because we have an interview coming up with someone in our university who works on yeast, and she gives us a lot of great information. Smartest yeast person I know, (laughs) literally. So many things. Yeah, it's a really interesting interview, so definitely stick around for that. But basically, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. We're calling it yeast. It has a scientific name. Wait, let me try and pronounce it. Okay, you try and pronounce okay. it. Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Close. Sac- Saccharomyces. I, I think. Okay, I give up. <laughs> Natalie will tell us how to pronounce yeah, it yeah, later. Um, but basically, it is a yeast. It's just found in warm, moist environments, and it usually likes to have a sugar close by to survive off of. Like us all. Um <laughs> <laughs> like all of us. And one of its favorite places to hang out is a vineyard, where it likes to grow on grape skins. Same. So, <laughs> um, it was discovered in 1856 by our favorite sterile technique man, Louis Pasteur, who gave us so much microbiology. Uh, yeah, he did principles of vaccination, microbial fermentation, and pasteurization, a.k.a. Pasteur. Mm-hmm. He's a rock star. He is French. <laughs> he probably likes croissants. <laughs> and so he identified this yeast as a key winemaking and bread-baking microbe, and he was able to cultivate it um, in a lab and found that it can be both anaerobic, anaerobic, and so... When it's grown in the absence of oxygen, it switches to fermentation, which is how it metabolizes sugars and then produces alcohol as a byproduct. And it slowly became a very prominent feature in labs to use as a model organism. Mm-hmm. And it lent to a lot of big discoveries. So why don't you give us a highlight of some of those? Yeah. So first and foremost, in 1996, it was the first organism to have its full genome sequenced, which is kind of a huge stepping stone for where science is today mm-hmm. because we now have um, you can almost sequence you can sequence everybody's genome or yeah. everything's genome uh, and it really started with the ability to sequence uh, yeast back in 1996 after that there was a lot of Nobel Prizes that were able to be awarded to different discoveries made with yeast uh, and so in 2001 and 2013 or between 2001 and 2013, four Nobel Prizes were awarded for the discoveries involving yeast research. And that's pretty incredible because it's such a, it's a unicellular organism. It's mm. tiny. And yeah. so the fact that we've been able to contrib- like attribute a lot of scientific knowledge to it, it's pretty outstanding. It is. Uh, and so in 2001, three scientists shared the Nobel Prize for their independent work establishing the role of different genes in controlling the cell cycle. And that lends its way to how it applies to humans, um, cancer specifically, a mm. bunch of different things that we need to know how to control the cell cycle to really mitigate any types of tumor growth that is bypassing different parts of the cycle that they're able to have mutated and things like that. Uh, and so... Yeah, a lot of metabolism studies Yeah, done metabolism. Um, a lot of beer has been made with yeast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, it's, yeast is super important, and it's lend its way to be able to do higher-end organismal, organismal research. Mm-hmm. And um, it just fascinates me how small it is and how large of a contribution it's had to science. Yeah. And so we're going to hear more now on yeast from our interview guest, Natalie, who does metabolism research mm-hmm. with yeast. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And 
like I, we were talking about before we started recording, we've had E. coli so far. We're kind of making our way up, not the food chain, but like yeah. some yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Chain. Um, so we have E. coli, now we have yeast, next we'll do C. elegans, which we both work in. Oh, perfect. And then, yeah, flies, flies and everything. mice. Okay, so Natalie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself right now, um, who you are, what you do. Yeah, so um, I guess just starting now, I'm a fifth-year graduate student, and uh, I am getting my Ph.D. in cell and molecular biology. Um, I am originally from Southern California, um, from a little city that's like a suburb of L.A. called Whittier, Mm -hmm. and um, I did my undergraduate degree at UC San Diego and lucky I love that campus I know it was it's one of those things where you're like you you don't visit the beach enough when you're there and then when Mm -hmm. you leave you're like this sucks (laughs) you should have gone way more the library is so cool yeah Geisel yeah yeah Yeah, it's awesome I think they used it as like the fortress in like uh inception or something like that yeah really (laughs) but um I'm also, or I, so I got my uh, bachelor's degree there in microbiology um, in 2013, and then like I moved uh, to Dallas, Texas, like right after graduation, um, where I where my boyfriend was staying at the time, my now husband, um, and then since then I've just been working in. Um, industry research labs and then also academia research labs uh, and I finally started graduate school in the fall of 2017. Cool. Oh, wow. yeah. Before you came here, did you do any other research in any other type of model organisms? Yeah. So, well, interestingly, I've, I've pretty much stayed in like microorganisms <laughs> for the most part. So, like, like in undergrad, I worked like exclusively with bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for most of undergrad, I worked in a lab that um, studied nitrogen fixation oh, in cool. um, bacteria that, uh, uh, or photosynthesizing bacteria, so they get their energy from sunlight, and uh, the idea was to basically like tweak their genome so that they can be used for um, biofuels production. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because there's a lot of um, biotech companies out in San Diego that specifically work in biofuels production so they'll work with Mm -hmm. either yeast or like photosynthesizing bacteria so our lab was like um kind of basic science based in that respect and then Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it it was a lot of fun and um that that was pretty much like I would say like the bulk of my research experience in undergrad Mm -hmm. um and then when I moved to Texas um I worked uh for like just under a year at a food safety testing lab. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So like still microbiology, um, but we basically tested like every food (laughs) imaginable, like soup, um, dog food, um, like uh, chips, cereal. Uh, We tested them for like pathogenic bacteria um, or like um, pathogenic like mold and fungi. Um, How often did you find it? Oh, you were testing oh, it? oh, uh, so like there are definitely <laughs> like, Do I think, know? <laughs> yeah, is it yeah. like trade secrets? <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah. The, the, like this one, they, uh, so I would say like, there's always a cutoff basically. Mm-hmm. So like the FDA will be like, this is safe, you know? Yeah. So this X amount of like fungi or bacteria, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they're a little like loose with the fungi, but, um, uh, usually the bacteria, like it's kind of like a yes or no question Mm -hmm. and if it is then we would like notify the client and basically they would like pull their food you know for x amount of time until they can like get Mm -hmm. that entire batch you know wait so Uh, that kind of lab is the one who will like you know cause a onion recall mm -hmm. and that kind of thing yeah exactly yeah lettuce recall oh totally yeah because we so we tested um uh for listeria like Mm. in dairy products or just Ah. like um cured meats, uh, a lot of frozen stuff, also salmonella, um, I think uh, pseudomonas, like a bunch of the kind of like scary pathogens yeah. and yeah. stuff. Um, but um, luckily, like I, I think I personally never came across anything that like had a major scary hit. I knew yeah. other people I worked with though who did, so they, wow. you have to call the, you know, the, the supplier and be like, hey, like you should... <laughs> pull this not sell this yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous you know oh, um 
yeah, and and it it was definitely a taxing job. It's tough, like because you're you're taking samples like from like really early in the morning to really late at night, mm-hmm. and you know uh, there's times of the year like obviously like we'll get like seasonal things like cakes and stuff like yeah. Christmas time, all those things. So you get slammed with a lot of stuff. But it was it was really cool. It was kind of like my first foray into like research in um the food industry yeah yeah would it ever make you like not want to eat stuff yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so that there's like if there's anything i could i could impart is that like which maybe some people do already but i would anytime you handle like dog treats or food i'd wash your hands afterwards because they're they have like baseline levels of salmonella because the dogs are fine like they can handle that stuff um but like in the food um you know just like with transfer and stuff you just have to be careful um I think I'm trying to remember anything else that, uh, like, certain, uh, you'd be surprised, like, certain powders, like, protein powders and, mm-hmm. um, like, different, like, energy, like, drink mix powders can have, like, certain molds and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah. No, I, I think, <laughs> no, there, there's, like, a, uh, yeah, it, it, it can really very those are the things that stood out the most um and then definitely kind of like the big ones like the um i think alfalfa sprouts mm. can have like listeria oh. and stuff or like I certain know what those are yeah like <laughs> certain like leafy greens like stuff pre-packaged things yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah my mouth is open even though i have my mask on i'm like <laughs> my jaws dropped i was like huh this is so interesting. This is, I know. That's a jaw drop. I know. We I don't need to know do a food, like, a food research episode. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Like, that would be really cool. And it, it really is. So, like, that that was uh, one of the, um, it ended up kind of being, like, a blessing because, like, when I, coming from San Diego, it's, like, very, like, translational biomedical research. Right. And then, um, you know, coming to Dallas, uh, actually, food industry research is huge up here. And I had no idea. That. Yeah, because you huh. have Frito-Lay, like, you yeah. know, big companies like that up here um and so like after i worked at that um food safety testing lab for about a year it's like an end that was an independent company Mm -hmm. um i got a job working for research and development at a big dairy company um yeah like uh so they i I would uh i'll like keep the name out but they (laughs) but they basically they have like probably the most popular sour cream in like the nation um but (laughs) uh it was uh that was a lot of fun and it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with their like microbiology scientists and their mm. microbiology department. Oh, cool. So we basically um, tweaked their recipes um, uh, for their uh, sour cream and other dairy products and um, figured out which combinations of bacteria would help uh, with the fermentation oh. process. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I, I worked there for about like two two years I think okay um yeah and it, it was really cool it was like uh like more kind of experience in terms of how food research is done and like yeah. we also because we were part of the research and development team so we also got to see the marketing side too so we would hmm. get like you know go to meetings where <clears throat> we talked about um like sales and other stuff like that yeah. so kind of like saw also um we did a lot of test groups so like we would have people come and taste you know different blends and they'd be like this tastes gross (laughs) don't change it for that yeah i want to go be a test group no we we used to like um my other friend who was a co-worker there like she she ran a lot of those trials and she would just like send out email blasts like being like hey we have yeah it was it was really cool can i be part of a focus group or something yeah (laughs) that's so cool i love sour cream yeah 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 it was a, uh, I mean, and and like in addition, we got which was like a perk. We got a lot of free sour cream and mm-hmm. and ah. other dairy products like cottage cheese, other stuff. So it was. So uh, cool. We just got to take it home for like Super Bowl and other big. That's <laughs> stuff. so fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, that is really interesting. Mm-hmm. We might have to have you back to talk about like yeah. food science because that's super cool. Yeah. But okay, pivoting back to yeah. the yeast. <laughs> I know we all both. Got, no, like, so no, no, no. Yeah, there's lots of cool. stuff. Um, so talking about yeast, yeah. um, please pronounce the full name for us. Oh, yeah. Because neither one of us can. Yeah. I think uh, we can do C. elegans. <laughs> no, I, I think, so um, hopefully I'm saying it right, but it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Okay. That's, yeah. Cool. And um, there's, you know, so many uh, species and, like, different right. genus of, of yeast. You know, there's fission yeast, which I think is... 
uh, Schizosaccharomyces pombe. Uh, I've never worked with that one. <laughs> I've only worked with, like, Cerevisiae. Um, okay. And, like, I, I think I've been working with it since 2016. So when okay. before I started graduate school, um, I worked in a lab at the same institution where I'm at now. And mm-hmm. um, that was, like, my first foray into, like, away from, like, pure microbiology and into cell biology and using yeast as like a model system for cell biology research, um, specifically metabolism research. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been like almost like five or six years now working exclusively with Mm -hmm. yeast. What do you call them on the day-to-day? Oh, yeast babies. I call them (laughs) my babies, yeah. That's how I tell my friends, too, the ones that are, like, outside of science, too. They ask me, like, how are your yeast babies growing? I'm like, they're doing good. It's like our wormy boys. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Even though, like, they're... they're (laughs) Yep. B-O-I-S. B-O-I-S. Boys. Boys. That's so cute. I have a question. Yeah. you like in E. coli, mm-hmm. we have the non pathogenic, obviously, yeah. in labs. Yeah, yeah. So, what is the difference between yeast oh. you do research on and like stuff people use to bake and brew mm. and stuff like that? So, uh, Cerevisiae is, is the exact same yeast that you use oh. to bake, and cool. yeah, so like in emergencies, I, I've never had to do it, but I've heard from like kind of like OG old school PIs that yeah. like they could just go to the supermarket and buy like dry baker's yeast and like uh-huh. essentially culture it if there was like any this was like in the 70s or something yeah. <laughs> like a while back I've never had to do that but it's it's the same one that used to ferment um beer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. bake essentially yeah. so to for our listeners who are imagining mm-hmm. baker's yeast like that dry yeah. pellet stuff yes yeah I'm um, what is the difference between what you're culturing, how it looks, mm. and how does it get to be that dry, like, pellet? Yeah, so th- that actually, I'm not entirely sure, because I've never worked with, like, the dried pellet form, yeah. you know? Um, I'm I'm imagining it's, like, probably just uh, desiccated. So, like, ye- yeast can, like, sporulate. Um, mm, right. So during, like, hardy times when they're, like, star- starving, essentially, um uh, if they're in their uh, mated form where they're basically uh, diploid, um, mm-hmm. and they uh, they can sporulate and, f- and form, like, essentially little premature yeast babies. Okay. <laughs> and um, I, I'm imagining that, like, with, with that yeast, like, once you put it into, like, a baked good or something, they can start growing. I'm okay. that I'm not as familiar with so um, but um but the the form that we work with is always like um it comes like frozen down in media mm-hmm. so they're like whole intact cells they're um all we yeah. have to do is streak them out onto um like a a media in which they can grow or put them into liquid media mm-hmm. and they can grow so okay so it's a yeah. lot like bacteria yeah mm-hmm. the same like handling process yeah 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 pretty much and that's why like um transitioning from like bacteria to mm-hmm. yeast was like very smooth mm-hmm. um okay. because it's the same you know use your sterile technique and all that stuff um right yeah it was it, it, I, I think that's why it was easy to pick up like a lot of the research projects going into yeast because I already had all that kind of background. Mm -hmm. So what is your, what is the life cycle of yeast and how Mm. often, if you're not doing experiments, how often do you have to maintain it or like look after them? That's a good question. Yeah. So yeast can actually go through their entire life cycle within like one to one and a half days. Oh wow, Um, that's fast. Yeah. Excuse me. In liquid media. And so pretty much the same as bacteria. Like you Mm -hmm. have this lag phase where say if you, um, put your yeast cells into fresh media. They're going to sit there for like a couple hours and kind of figure out like, you know, how much nutrients do I have? Like essentially kickstart their metabolism. Mm-hmm. And then once they get going, they enter this phase called log phase where mm-hmm. they're just like rapidly dividing. And with yeast, um, they usually like double the number of cells every um, 90 minutes mm-hmm. in like rich media. So media that has everything they need. Wow. And uh, they'll That's usually mm-hmm. burn through that phase, um, I would say, maybe in, like, two to three hours. And then once they start using up every, like, all the rich nutrients in their media, they'll enter a starvation phase. And that's called stationary phase, where mm-hmm. they've stopped growing. And then they start going through, like, more fermentative metabolism. And, uh, like, there are people who study basically all three stages Mm -hmm. um, for using yeast for metabolism research. Um, Most people work with 
yeast in their stationary phase because mm-hmm. um, that's when they upregulate a lot of their um, uh, ability to uh, store fat, essentially, is during gotcha. that starvation time. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so to kind of switch a little bit from just the basics of yeast, what do you do particularly, like, for your research? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, using yeast, like the lab that I'm in, is uh, interested in how um, metabolism works on the cellular level. So like what's happening in single cells. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeast are like a great model system for that um, because a lot of the uh, parts that are used to make fat or break down fat are pretty much exactly the same as they are in like... Uh, human cells or uh, fly uh, fly cells or mice. And um, I specifically study um, how yeast cells make and break down their fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's really cool because they actually, uh, well, so the way like humans uh, store fat is in mm-hmm. um, these like spherical globular structures called lipid droplets. Right. And so um, yeast actually uh, make lipid droplets and they break them down. So I, I study specifically how that uh, breaking down of fat process occurs uh, in yeast. Oh, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I mean, half my lab does that, but in CL again. Yeah, see, that's and that's the cool thing is that, like, um, a lot of, uh, which is one thing I like about my, my lab, too, is that, like, we pair... Um, like studying fat storage in yeast with like studying fat storage in flies mm-hmm. and then also mammalian cells because there's so many really cool. like, um, you know, uh, proteins and, and other stuff that uh, overlaps essentially. They have like twins, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. other model systems. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of cool about like science today too mm-hmm. is that labs aren't honed in on just one model yeah, system. Because yeah. in the past mm-hmm. it would be like, if mm-hmm. you are a yeast lab, you are only a yeast lab. Mm-hmm. You don't do anything mm-hmm. else. And so it's kind of cool how labs are starting to make sure they spread and they're able to, in within one lab, see reproducibility yeah. with different systems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So specifically for your research mm-hmm. that you do, not necessarily your lab, yeah. what are you, are you looking at like a specific protein on the yes, liposome yeah. or the lipid droplets? Mm-hmm. Or? Yeah, so like I specifically look at... Um, like protein, well, proteins in general that mm-hmm. sit on the surface of these lipid droplets, mm-hmm. and um, even though like we generally know uh, have, or like have a have an idea as to like how uh, these lipid droplets are broken down during like times of starvation, mm-hmm. there's still not a lot known about the specific ways in which that occurs, like um, whether you know things happen um, in like complexes or not, mm-hmm. and so um, I uh, actually look at this uh, one protein that uh, goes to only a subset or sort of like only some lipid droplets in a single cell. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, uh, and right now at the moment, like the hypothesis I'm working off of is that this protein is protecting this uh, like uh, small group of lipid droplets from being burned through too early, essentially. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, um, so it involves a lot of, uh, imaging. Mm -hmm. Um, I study, um, basically the, or I I basically look at the lipid levels or, uh, or the fat levels of yeast that don't have this protein. Mm -hmm. And when they don't have this protein, they basically burn through all of their fat so fast, Mm -hmm. which is weird because Mm -hmm. it's only on like some of the lipid droplets. So. Um, that's something I'm trying to figure out <laughs> at the moment. It's like uh, a yield sign. Yes. For the mm-hmm. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. My my PI likes to describe it as kind of like a fine tuning lever, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. Um, because you you obviously if this protein is protecting you know droplets from being burned too early, you don't want it on all of them. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's almost like providing a little bit of a lever. Like we want to burn through some mm-hmm. when we need to. Um, but not all of our stores, right, yeah, or right. too early. So, And then uh, it's kind of cool because when you take the same protein and you overexpress it, so that just means making a ton of mm-hmm. the protein in the cell, it uh, will go onto all of the lipid droplets, yeah. and the lipid droplets are 
huge. Like, mm. uh, they're super fat, <laughs> and they, um, uh, they, it, yeah, they, there's a ton of them essentially in the cell. So okay. um, it's basically uh, having the opposite effect. Uh, so it's like uh, over, I guess, um, uh, essentially blocking the uh, breakdown of mm-hmm. fat so that the cells actually accumulate and can't burn wow. through cool. their fat. Could so, you, sorry, I was yeah. going to say, could could you send us a picture of like a cell with the yeah. droplets in them so yes. we can put it on our Instagram? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, no, cool. and, and, and that's the cool thing is that um, in, uh, in yeast, and you can use the same... Um, the same uh, reagents and things like that in uh, mammalian cells, but there's like spe- special dyes mm-hmm. that stain the fat in these lipid droplets, oh, and cool. uh, they they come in all colors. There's some that like will light up like blue or mm-hmm. red or green. The one that I use is blue, so mm-hmm. I just you know I literally just add it to like a little culture flask that has yeast growing, yeah. and they suck up the dye and it goes into yep. their like lipid droplets and you can put them under the microscope and look at oh, very cool. the droplets. We do like. that for worms too. Yeah, also, yeah. yeah. See, cool. the, the, they yeah. just eat it right up and then absorb it. Huh. Oh, so you put it in the food? Yeah, oh, we just put so it cool. on their, um, yeah, the E. coli that they eat up. Oh, that huh. is, and oh. it's really cool to like pulse chase it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah. That, that's why I I love studying like um, metabolism in mm-hmm. in like lower organisms because mm-hmm. it's just so cool. Mm-hmm. So I was gonna say, what cell like, if there even is a type of like cell ortholog, would you compare oh. yeast to in humans? Oh, honestly, um, I'm trying to think of like a specific like cell line um honestly i i guess maybe the the first thing that pops to mind is just like a generic picture of like a mammalian cell because it's set up almost exactly the same way yeah Yeah. um you know um you know it it has pretty much the same like compartments you know Mm -hmm. or the organelles as we call them um it um is uh, has a lot of the same like Contacts between those organelles, um, which right. uh, make it like really useful for studying like those processes in um, or uh, figuring out how those processes work in mammalian cells. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's like a good it's a good baseline for any generic non-specialized mammal cell. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, um, you know, I, I I think when you get to like more like complicated cells or mm-hmm. like say like heart you know muscle cells and mm-hmm. stuff it's yeah. obviously very different so it's more kind of just like generic um you know cells I, I would say like we we can compare like a lot of the structures to say like liver cells like hepatocytes because mm-hmm. okay. um you know there's uh there's fat stores in there but they're not like one single fat store like if right. you were to look at uh, an adipocyte or like a fat cell. Yeah. It's you know very different. So probably closest to a liver liver cell. Okay, yeah. cool. That's really cool. So because you guys also do other model organisms mm-hmm. studying similar processes, what do you see as the pros and cons of using yeast specifically mm. for your project? Yeah. So um, I definitely the pros would be I mean they grow very fast. Yeah. Um, they um, you can easily. Um, manipulate their genome so you can mm. basically make yeast strains that don't have your your protein uh, or excuse me their your gene of interest mm. and uh, you can make uh, yeast strains that mm-hmm. can overexpress and you can do that in like less than two to three days oh, um, nice. so it's really fast I know you know obviously if you're moving to like mammalian systems or like higher organ uh, higher organisms you know you have to use more complex mm-hmm. methods right. and it takes longer um, they're also just like very hardy. I, I would say like um, the like say like the sterile technique you use with um, like cultured human cells. You have mm-hmm. to be very careful. This these they're they're kind of just like their media is very specific to yeast. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of like bacterial co- contamination is like really low. Oh okay. Um, cons are basically that um, it's not as translational. It's uh, yeast are better. Um, you know, for a lot of like basic science research, and um, when it comes to like funding and funding agencies, they like to see uh, yeast work paired with um, research in um, higher organisms mm-hmm. like mice or mammalian cells. Um, there's definitely there. It, there's kind of a limit to the number of questions you can ask. Like, you can't obviously look at like 
organ biology or whole cell kind of, you know, dynamics and things like that. Um, It's uh, it's better for answering questions on like like more basic uh, simple processes, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on on the cellular level, essentially, because a lot of those processes um, mirror those of mammalian cells. Mm -hmm. Right. I I personally think it's important to um, be able to understand a lot of these basic cellular processes Mm -hmm. before you start applying stuff to translational research, because if you don't understand, like, how things are trafficked in the cell or, like, how things are made or broken down, then, Mm -hmm. you know, you, Mm -hmm. I feel like it, it creates like barriers once you start moving higher up yeah for sure and same with like drug research Mm -hmm. if you find a drug that works then you kind of have to work backwards Mm -hmm. instead of like starting with the basic science and then developing a drug yeah Mm -hmm. which that's really interesting so with all of that what would you say your favorite technique is in the lab when Mm -hmm. you're using your yeast I think uh, I really love imaging just because I, uh, I Me like, too. yeah, I like looking at colors <laughs> and, and, and things and, and because uh, yeast are so uh, easy to like genetically manipulate, you mm-hmm. can remove stuff, put it, put stuff in right. um, that, um, you know, there's yeast strains where you can have like um, six different proteins that are fluorescently tagged and look at all of oh, those cool. at the same time. That is really cool. Yeah, because there are, you know, there are ways to, to do that really easily. It's um, a big spectrum. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so I, it's mainly, I would say, the imaging. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's just cool to, like, uh, especially when you're essentially starving yeast and you're forcing them to, like, use all of their lipid droplets, yeah. um, you can image that and you can see, you know, like essentially the cell from going, uh, having these like, you know, bright blue dots all over to mm-hmm. like, you know, right after starvation, it's like completely gone. Yeah. Oh, or cool. you can also basically just add, um, add fat to their media <laughs> and they'll suck it up and make like, they'll basically just store a bunch of lipid droplets. So they do these fats. You make your yeast really fat. Yeah, exactly. Like we make obese yeast basically. Aww. It's like, yeah. So obese yeast. I know it's, it, I think that's, that's the coolest thing. And I think just being able to see like your protein of interest, whatever you're studying, like, um, see where it goes in the cell, see yeah. what happens to it. Um, that, that's always my favorite. <laughs> okay. So we're, this has been great. We're going to kind of slowly wrap up, but a couple of, you know, lighter questions to ask you at the end here. Um, what's something that you do kind of in a day-to-day in the lab that your friends and family wouldn't really understand it unless mm-hmm. they saw it or they just don't really understand that that's a part of your, you know, work? Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would definitely say, like, cloning. So, like, yeah. they're, like... You know, um, I mean, I, I work with yeast, but also, you know, in, in order to like change all these things in the genome, like mm-hmm. you have to kind of go back to just like very basic molecular biology. Yeah. And so when I explain stuff like this to like my family members, you know, I, I tell them, you know, we're essentially going in and we're like cutting out, you know, parts yeah. of the yeast gene or like we're mm-hmm. adding stuff in so that they can make a lot of something. Mm-hmm. And um, my, I remember my father-in-law was like, oh, so do you get actually like little scissors and you go <laughs> through and you cut through, you know, he's like, what kind of a microscope do you need for that? And I'm like, uh-huh. no, it's, I mean, uh, it's a... Uh, in theory, it's like really cool, but you know, mm-hmm. obviously, when you're doing day to day cloning, it's a little yeah. more mundane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of yeah. waiting. Yeah. I yeah, so, yeah. So basically, like you, you know, everything is happening in a you know a test tube or you know like a essentially a little tube, yeah. and you know it just gets heated and cooled a bunch of times, and yeah. then you know now your your piece of DNA or whatever you made is ready for use, and you can put it into your model organism, and so. Um, yeah, I kind of, I think it would be, like, honestly cool if, like, you know, I don't know, I could have my father-in-law with me so he could watch me do, like, do it and be like, see, like, this is what's happening, yeah. you know, like, it'll look cool once I get it into my yeast. Right yeah. now, it's just, it's a little more boring, but I think it, it's always fun because everybody's like, oh, that is so awesome. Like, you can change things, like, can yeah. you change my DNA? <laughs> All sorts of weird questions. I think almost like the pandemic has helped shed light on cloning yeah. a little bit, just because mm-hmm. people are hearing the word PCR, like yes. acronym PCR. Yes. yes, every single person mm-hmm. now knows what a PCR yes. is, even a little bit. Oh, it helps so much. Okay. It really does. Yeah. yeah, like explaining and like 
I even like my my father in law, at least in my family, is the one who's like seems to be most interested mm-hmm. about everything. So he asks, he's like, Do you use CRISPR? Like I'm like, <laughs> How did you find out about CRISPR? <laughs> like all these like, you know, technologies that are very yeah. like common to mm-hmm. uh scientific research, but like uh, now, like, the general public, you know, can mm-hmm. read about this stuff. And it's nice because, it, you know, obviously there's, like, a level, a different level of understanding between, like, him and I. But I can kind of, like, sit with him and, like, try to explain it, yeah. you know, yeah. um, in a way that we can kind of have fun conversations. So that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, that is fun. Well, okay, so kind of like the fa- final question mm-hmm. to wrap up. And it's a question no grad student likes. Oh. But. Well, we feel justified asking you. Oh, okay. <laughs> when, when do you think you're going to graduate? Oh, yeah. So I actually just had this conversation with my PI like yesterday. And uh, I'm hoping um, maybe by next um, January. Oh, okay. okay. In a year? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, so right, right now I'm basically in the process of like I have maybe, if everything goes well, like four more experiments to like mm-hmm. okay. kind of burn through and then um, put together like uh, figures and basically put together a manuscript and hopefully mm-hmm. submit it before the end of the summer. Okay. And, um, you know, and, and in between that is like running things by my committee, like, yeah. you know, so I want to have a draft for them. Um, so, yeah, ideally um, next January. 2023? <laughs> yes, 2023, nice. hopefully. Nice. Yeah, you know, if, if everything goes yeah. well. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, do you have any manuscripts or anything that we could, or like papers out that we could tag you in and yeah. like people could go read if they wanted to? Yeah, yeah. We have like a, a handful. Yeah, I can definitely like send like one or two or something like Ooh, that we'll that recently came yeah. out. Yeah, and can cool. learn more about lipid droplets and yeah. cool, fun stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So do you have... Um, this is also a controversial <laughs> question to ask grad students. Yeah. Do you have an idea what you want to do next? Yeah. So um, I actually, I mean, I, although I love like, you know, research and, and uh, academia, um, I'm like, see myself like moving away from mm-hmm. that. And um, I actually really like the idea of becoming a patent agent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, and, cool. and you, you know, they're, they're essentially like middlemen between, you know, like scientists, researchers, mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, uh, patent lawyers. So you're, right. you know, you're interpreting the science and yep. helping write patents for different discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I really like the idea because I've, I've spoken with a couple of patent agents about like their day-to-day job and mm-hmm. um, they're not restricted to just like one field of science yep. you know they're that does seem really fun yeah they're reading about mm-hmm. like you know like um new research uh, or new techniques that want to be or that need to be patented in like agricultural research mm-hmm. or like biomedical research and right. there's some patent agents that are exclusively like chemistry based or like computational stuff like that and so I think it would be cool because they're just you know like from what I've been told they're reading new stuff uh, or essentially new papers every day and kind mm-hmm. of summarizing things and you kind of have to learn on the fly I, I think I would really enjoy that so that's my plan that's really cool. <laughs> yeah that's yeah really cool. awesome well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. It's been a pleasure getting yeah. to know you and like all the research you do and you. learning more about yeast. Yeah, this was a great combo food and yeast conversation. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Yes. Yeah, no, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Natalie, for coming out and interviewing with Priyanka and I. It was such a delight learning more about yeast and everything that it can be applied to and actually just learning more about you as a researcher and your background. So yeah. you definitely inspired us to make a food episode now in the yeah. future. I went home and I like talked about it and I was like, this sour cream <laughs> was probably used at her lab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um thank you to Natalie, thank you to everybody that we um have used throughout our podcast such as the people that have came up with our jingle and we will be posting natalie's things on our instagram uh, of pictures of her yeast and then we're going to also post her any types of publications she has in the show notes so that you can read more about something that she has published on mm-hmm. so to kind of end the podcast today pre what are you reading I have been reading lately a book called American Sherlock, The Birth of 
CSI and Forensic Science. Mm. And it's a book, a nonfiction book. Yes, it's crime-based, of course, but it's a book about... Hey, crime's nonfiction. (laughs) (laughs) It's a book about the man, Oscar Heinrich, who basically (laughs) created modern forensic science as we know it. Interesting. And he was a chemist, Mm -hmm. and it's super fascinating to hear he, like, came up with techniques to, you know, match sand from shoes to the sand on certain beaches and... He came up with fingerprinting techniques, and he was best friends with the man who created the polygraph machine. And um, So it's really fascinating. I'm reading through. Uh, so the reason I got onto this book was because the woman who wrote it hosts a podcast that I really like. Oh, okay. And she's an excellent author. And so it is just fascinating for someone who both loves science and also loves true crime. This mm-hmm. is literally the perfect kind of book to read. Yeah. Damn. Um, and because she's such a good storyteller, I'm learning a lot about, like, old-timey cases mm-hmm. and how they solved them in the 20s and 30s in California. Um, and you'd be surprised at how thorough they were with their forensic science. Like, yes, mm-hmm. some of the techniques were a little bit off yeah. or, you know, not very well established, they were thorough, though, and they did some great crime solving. Probably more thorough than they are today. Actually, what's interesting about that is a lot of the techniques he created mm-hmm. haven't really changed mm-hmm. since then. Okay. And a lot of them are being disputed today as not entirely reliable or based on solid science. For mm-hmm. example, the polygraph machine is something that we've, we know you can dupe. Yeah. Or you can, like, trick. But it's still used as, like, a gold standard in a lot of places. Hmm. But That's interesting. But um, you do hear people on it. Yeah. And it's, so that's the kind of thing that, like, he established as this technique that people treat it as pure science, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not exa- an exact, you know, answer every time. Um, but, yeah, so that's what I'm reading currently. That's very interesting. What are you reading? I'm reading Fiction by Kurt Vonnegut. Well, that's not the name, but it is fiction. Uh, it's called Cat's Cradle. And so what's actually interesting is it does also have a scientific twist because a lot of it is talking about the family behind the, basically the doctor who created the atom bomb that mm-hmm. was dropped on Hiroshima. And they kind of mix and mingle this like weird mesh of what actually happened with a lot of fictional aspects and it talks about this one like last creation he came up with before he passed away Mm -hmm. um and so i mean what he came up with is not feasible at all at least what i think but it's fun to think that it could be possible Mm -hmm. so i'll stop there if anybody wants to read it i mean it was made in the 60s and so it's a very old book but you know I love the humor and the aspect of different types of science that people bring into fiction. Yeah, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Follow us on our socials. Um, on Instagram, we're incubation underscore time. Mm-hmm. Same on Twitter. Yep. And feel free to email us any questions you might have um, at our Gmail, incubation.time.pod. Yep. And actually, Gmail doesn't honor the periods between the words, so you can just do incubation time pod. <laughs> Incubation type I actually did not know that. That's a good thing to know. Yep. You can put them where you don't have to, but they don't honor them. Cool. Um, Fun fact of the day. If you learn anything from this podcast, <laughs> just know that you don't have to put the periods between. If you lasted this so. long. Yes. Us mom. Just, just rambling. <laughs> All right. Well, we will talk to you guys next time. And you had something incubating? And we have filled your time. This is Incubation, incubation Time. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you're already dead. What are you going to do? You can still be buried without your liver. You'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> We're going to get some comments on that one. <laughs>